What's going on? You're listening to The Peak Weekly, where we have conversations with the most interesting people in Canadian business. I'm your host, Brett Chang. Welcome back to The Peak Weekly. It is officially the dead of winter, and I don't know about you, but winter plus COVID lockdown means that I'm barely going outside, which is good for stopping the virus, but it's also great for sitting back, putting your feet up, and getting smarter about Canadian business. And that's exactly what we are going to do in today's episode. I'm super excited about this one. We're joined by Chief Strategy Officer of Warchild Canada, Elliot Pobjoy. In this episode, we talk about Elliot's unique path from corporate law to philanthropy, how Warchild operates in some of the most challenging environments in the world, the relationship between charities and donors, and advice for you on how to most effectively give back to your community and around the world. It's an episode packed with value, and I honestly can't wait for you to hear it. But before we do, I've got two asks. First, please smash that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using. Subscribing means you'll get updated when the Peak Weekly comes out. And not to spoil anything, but we've got some really incredible guests coming up. So you want to subscribe. And two, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get more exposure. And we read every single one of them. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's get to our episode with Elliot Popjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Peak Weekly. We've got a very exciting episode for you today. We have someone with a very different background from our last guest, our only guest on this podcast, Chris Book. But this week, we are joined by Elliot Pobjoy, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of Warchild Canada. And as always, I'm joined by uh, my co-founder, Alex Blumenstein. Elliot, Alex, thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. Awesome. So what I want to do is uh, I would love to dig a bit deeper into the world of philanthropy today. Uh, something that I think there's a lot of people, especially in our listeners and on our newsletter audience who want to give back and they just don't really know the best way to do so. And, I, and so I thought it'd be great to talk to you, one, to learn more about you and your background. And two, I, I'd love to kind of get into some practical advice for people about how they can do more philanthropically. And so I guess we can start by just, I'd love to get a bit of a background on yourself and, and how you got to War Child. For sure. Well, uh, right now at Warchild, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer and General Counsel. And what Warchild is, it's an organization that's been in Canada since 1999. Um, and we help kids and their families in conflict areas. Uh, we tend to focus a lot of our programs on uh, ensuring that they're safe, that they're educated, uh, that their families have livelihoods, and that they get the right protection that they need. Uh, a lot of our work ends up helping the women in the communities. Uh, and uh, we are uh, operational now in Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Iraq, uh, South Sudan, Uganda. Uh, we also respond to uh, emergencies. Uh, so quite recently, there was conflict in Ethiopia. Uh, we're now involved providing support in Sudan as well, uh, where we have had operations there uh, way back since the early conflict in Darfur. Uh, so what my day-to-day -day looks like is I run the organization alongside my uh, colleague, Dara, uh, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Smith and our founder. Uh, it's been a really, really great adventure working at Warchild because we're working in these really interesting uh, spots across the world. Uh, but particularly this year with COVID, it's been a challenge and a different experience in almost every single country that we operate within. Um, and the best part of my job is 99% of our staff are actually local to the communities that we work in. So we get to rely on their expertise in order to provide the best solutions 
for their communities, depending on their local circumstances. So every day I look at my job as just basically ensuring that they have the tools they need to make sure that their community can build and grow after some really devastating circumstances now, including of course, COVID-19. Cool. And I just want to take a second because I know you're a lawyer by trade and I know you did some work in politics and government before this. What was the path that led you to becoming an executive at Warchild? Well, it's a very long and twisted path. Uh, I wish I could pretend like this was something I planned, but the truth is, is uh, I've just done a smorgasbord of stuff. Uh, in my early t- 20s, my late teens, I was involved uh, in a variety of different uh, international work. I uh, worked in India. I worked with indigenous groups in Mexico, uh, always in the kind of the support role of local movements. Uh, and that transformed over the years to working for some great not-for-profits. I actually interned at Warchild when I was about 19. Uh, I have the, uh, the record of setting up the organization's MySpace page, uh, which I think really just set the organization up for success. Um, and then later on, I uh, went off, went to school, worked for a little bit in international security and international affairs for the government. Um, but ultimately, I had a, a friend and mentor who decided to run in politics. Uh, when he told me it was a, a real long shot, so I dropped everything. And somehow I woke up three or four or five years later uh, as a chief of staff in the provincial government. Uh, which was probably one of the luckiest and, and greatest experience that um, somebody in their early career can experience. But, you know, ultimately politics, you know, you're on top one day and, and you're out the next. And uh, before that happened, I, I wanted to jump out and uh, get a different type of career, which is why I went to law school. Uh, had a really great time working uh, at Goodman's LLP on Bay Street uh, in a variety of different areas, but ultimately falling into the administrative law uh, area. But uh, ultimately, there was a calling that I had a couple of years later uh, after law school. I actually experienced a bit of an uh, accident that happened after a medical surgery, and it just changed my perspective on everything. And ultimately, when my old boss, uh, Dr. Samantha Nutt, gave me a call and said, hey, we're looking for someone to join the team, it was the right time. And what I like about my spot at Warchild is it really lets me combine everything from the world of politics, uh, law, uh, my international work, particularly in a year like this where we're facing experience, problems with security and COVID-19 across the world. Um, and where we're also heavily engaged with different governments, both overseas, but even here at home, um, including advocating for some support for uh, charities across the country this year. Something you said that that I found very interesting was uh, your perspective changed. And I think that COVID-19 has changed a lot of people's perspective over the last year. And some people may be saying, you know, I'm sick of the corporate world and I want to get into the, um, I want to get into the uh, uh, charity or nonprofit world. Um, you know, what you do is so removed from at least in my understanding, from like the typical business world, right? Maybe you can help draw some comparisons between sort of how your, your, what skills are required to jump into something like international development or international security uh, from somebody who might be working on Bay Street uh, or, or at a startup or anything like that. For sure. And I, I hear that a lot. And the, the truth is actually operating inside an organization like ours, 
you know, we've got, uh, depending on what, what how, how many programs we've got operational at one time, you know, we have a multitude of different offices across the world, operations in really tricky circumstances, hundreds of staff, you know, upwards of 400 plus, depending on the programs. And we have all the same corporate challenges that most companies would have. Uh, you know, on the legal side of my uh, work, I'm, I'm doing corporate law, I'm doing tax law, I'm doing employment law. But taking a step back, when you look at a charity, it really operates like a, low, like a very, very challenging margin business. Um, we have to uh, appeal to a variety of different stakeholders. You know, some people I've heard say the customers are both our donors as well as our beneficiaries. But unlike a business, we also have to be worried about our reputation, how much impact we're having on the ground, how much trust we can generate with the people that we work to support who give us money sometimes. Um, and all of these things are skills that you can pick up from the corporate world uh, or from the not-for-profit world. There's a lot more interchangeability. In fact, I have found most, most of my success in finding uh, people and employees who have gone back and forth between sectors because they really have that understanding, those core skills that can work in all environments. Um, the other thing I should say though, Alex, is there's many ways to give back and with corporations uh, getting more and more involved with CSR, corporate social responsibility, a lot of companies actually building in doing good or environmental objectives into their bottom line. There's places within the corporate world as well that you can give back to. Um, so for a lot of people, they can make really good, meaningful contributions as donors, as volunteers, but also in those types of roles, as well as jumping to the sector. Um, so it doesn't always require a radical shift in order to give back. I'd love to zoom in a bit more on War Child itself. I think there's a bias for people to support charities and not-for-profits that are close to home because they feel like they can see the results. Whereas, you know, donating to something like War Child, it's you know, thousands of miles away and it feels very removed. So what is it exactly that War Child does and how does it make a tangible impact in the communities that you service? Yeah, it's a challenge in the sense that you're right. People do like to give at home. Uh, and that reflects in, you know, the donations, depending on which country you're looking at, can oftentimes be only 10 to 20% go to actual international causes. Um, but the truth is there's need everywhere. What War Child tries to do is really focus on empowering kids and their families in conflict areas, the hardest hit areas of the world. We do that predominantly through three different ways. One, we do it through education. And education is extremely important in terms of getting kids to develop as individuals, but also in terms of building stability within their communities and getting them the tools in order to have full lives and, and get jobs and, and become leaders in their own areas. In the areas that we operate in, a lot of times kids are out of school for a very long time. So what we focus in on is catch-up education, but we also focus in on uh, distance education. So in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we actually run uh, radio education program, which uh, basically allows us to run an entire school board of education with a radio-based curriculum um, that is, uh, allows children to be able to receive their education in their communities along with local assistance getting taught via radio um, in some highly uh, unstable areas. In the Congo, for example, 
People aren't sending their kids to school, not because they don't want to, but because conflict, particularly violence against young girls, is so significant that we need to create these distance-based options. The cool thing about that program is actually we based it off of an old radio education program that was pioneered right here in Canada post-war for farmers. Um, and it also came in really handy when COVID-19 broke out. So we've been spreading that across uh, our, our uh, program operations since then. Uh, in addition to education, we also uh, operate livelihood programs, which is all about uh, supporting young entrepreneurs with the skills and sometimes with the capital and loans that they need in order to build businesses. So when COVID-19 hit, we had a whole women's network in Afghanistan that was previously working in textiles, these women that were creating these amazing salons or clothing companies, they actually changed and started working on masks, on um, uh, uh, creating food for their communities, preserving it so that during the lockdown, they could actually feed their community. We also found that in many of the post-conflict communities, the best way that you get people to put down the gun is to give them a option, a financial option to be able to earn a living uh, doing something productive. And that's why these types of entrepreneurial activities are incredibly important. It's not just about getting people food, it's also about rebuilding the economy and thus rebuilding the community. And the last thing just to touch on really quickly is we do a lot of legal rights protection. Uh, so we have child protection centers, which actually provide children a safe space just to be protected to actually learn and just be kids, like literally just learn to play. But we also run law firms. So in Uganda and in Afghanistan, we're registered law firms and we provide legal assistance and support to uh, survivors of gender-based violence, uh, as well as people who have faced injustices. Uh, in these really difficult areas, we not only are providing people with lawyers and legal support when they find themselves on the wrong side of law, but also sometimes we're helping them actually get justice from impunity when they've been attacked. And our lawyers also are on the ground working with, legislature, with legislators to pass laws that favor the rights of kids and with women. So we have been incredibly successful working uh, on child marriage issues in Afghanistan. And so those three things, education, legal rights and protection, as well as economic and livelihoods programs. Those are our three pillars that we try to implement in every country that we operate in. One, one thing um, that's of note that you talked about is the development of the radio program. And I, I wonder if you can speak more about sort of the chain of knowledge that exists in the nonprofit world, especially in developing countries, and maybe also in relation to what I imagine is probably an issue here where you probably have, you know, I'm just thinking about like our listeners in that like it's probably you know people who are involved in tech and all this are like yeah. oh well why don't you use this technology why don't you use that why don't we disrupt you know war and all of that all of those sort of things so something as simple as radio seems to work so how do you how does that sort of knowledge kind of like come through your organization then how do you I, I don't want to say pass it along because I don't really know what that relationship looks like but on the ground in those countries how, how does that knowledge base work for you yeah it's, it's kind of funny right that one of our quote unquote, most innovative programs uses a technology that's probably on its way out radio. Uh, yeah. But the truth is operating in unstable environments with really challenging supply chains, 
you know, literally the logistical challenges of being able to get into these countries can be a challenge, let alone bringing over technology, always operates as a challenge that we have to overcome. Uh, and so, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you have a massive piece of geography. You have significant infrastructure problems when it comes to roads. Um, you have uh, violence and instability that prevents significant amounts of investment and movement. And you really just have to look for those cheat codes in order to operate great programs. But the problem that particularly folks in our sector have to always be conscious about is that they don't have a solution in mind that they're on the hunt to use. You know, the mode of development, the, the empowerment that War Child seeks to implement is to work with communities. That's why 99% of our staff are local so that we can actually figure out what's on the ground, what the challenge is. They, we come up with solutions in consultation with those communities and our local staff. And generally it's them that bring these ideas to us. Now, oftentimes, once we are working with them on those partnerships, we can bring in our local partners here in Toronto who have may, may have ideas in terms of technology, et cetera. But it's super important that we always have that community need as our core focus and then go back. But I'll just give you an example of how much these things can change. We actually have had our program staff themselves in certain countries become refugees one day after conflict breaks out. And so they go from being the providers of our programs right to being a recipient. And they themselves are the ones who are in refugee camps in those circumstances telling us what services, what support they need um, in order for us to keep operating in those areas. So in sometimes it's a real challenge for us to implement some of the technology solutions that we'd want to just because of those in unstable areas. But there are some really great solutions out there. And uh, if anyone's listening who has a great idea, we are always open. We'd love to hack these uh, challenges that we face every single day. I'd love to take a second to get into the business of charity and War Child in particular. And I don't know how much you can disclose. I presume it's actually all public, but uh, how much does War Child raise on an annual basis? And where does the majority of that money come from? Yeah, so it's, I mean, if you talk to anyone who works in the charitable world, they'll uh, talk your ear about different revenue types. We uh, receive two types of funding. We receive funding from uh, our partners in governments and international agencies. Uh, so for example, the government of Canada has long been a phenomenal supporter of War Child. But we also work in concert with the United Nations and their many agencies, as well as some pretty fantastic foundations like the MasterCard Foundation. Um, those are kind of like the institutional partners that we work with. We also receive a tremendous amount of support from the Canadian public. And that includes, you know, folks like my mom, who are monthly donors, who give what they can. But it also includes some really, really substantial uh, foundations who have put long-term investments in War Child because they believe in our impact. And there's individuals, very successful business folks who have decided to call war, to, to invest in War Child and to give us the strategic advice that we need uh, to grow. So that is the, our different revenue sources. And uh, you know, one of the things that you always hear different organizations talking about is what is the overhead? 
So there's a certain amount of funds that go overseas or within the country in order to provide the programs uh, that the charity is set up to provide. And the other funds are for overhead, which you know is a really challenging topic because it includes things that a lot of people would consider to be essential to those programs, but things like rent and advertising, marketing, oftentimes gets into that category. At Warchild, we try to have a really high margin of programs, so 85 to 90%, usually on the higher end. Um, but that's a really tricky metric to focus on because I can tell you, just like companies can you know, present metrics, that metric doesn't tell the full story of how effective an organization is. And it's something that, you know, speaking about the business of charities is something that the, the, the sector as a whole is trying to figure out how to properly convey our impact uh, for effective charities without just getting lost in the numbers game. You mentioned that you raise a significant portion from these institutions. Let's say they're, you know, corporations as part of their corporate social responsibility projects. What do you think about CSR generally? And how do you balance that dynamic between uh, partnering with these corporations and them having their own interests? And obviously you're trying to make as big of an impact as possible. I, I assume that at times it can be challenging to balance. For sure. I've been really lucky uh, to, and this isn't spin, I've always just been able to work with corporations at War Child that have always really had a philanthropic goal in mind. Um, less the type of arrangements that I think you hear horror, horror stories about in terms of companies doing it for the wrong reasons or trying to cover up problems or, you know, sometimes you hear these stories of donors driving a program that beneficiaries don't need. In part, I think that's because Warchild is a particular brand, has a particular image and, and modus operandi that we really communicate out to the world. But uh, it's also, I think, because companies themselves are becoming more and more sophisticated when it comes to corporate social responsibility. We've seen in the headlines over the last few years uh, times where companies have tried to launch empty campaigns or empty uh, investments that are pretty quickly dismantled on Twitter and elsewhere. And I think a lot of companies, particularly here in Canada, when they decide to do something, they really want to come in and do it well. So my experience has been the first conversations I generally have with our corporate partners is really focused on how can they make the biggest impact possible. Uh, and that I think is the right question and, and where we need to start with them. You've got, you mentioned how the majority of Warchild's teams on the ground are from the community themselves. I can imagine that that is one very challenging because of the cultural differences between you know where you sit and where they sit. And two, I can imagine that it's also very challenging environments. Uh, and so how do you, and I, I, I guess, I think we've talked about this before, but you send people also to all these different places as well. How do you manage all of that and ensure that they're kind of working towards the same goal and they're still being effective and uh, all of those variables that if you're, you know, and I think it's, it's funny to think about this, but a lot of people, I think in the corporate world now are dealing with this as we kind of turn to remote work, but this is remote work to the extreme. And so what advice would you give, you know, what's your experience been, been uh, leading teams like this? So I want to just acknowledge that our world of international development has its roots in colonialism and big part of operating a modern thoughtful organization is constantly being aware of that dynamic 
in addition to issues of diversity and, and general power imbalance that you have between wealthier countries and less wealthier countries. Um, and it's something that we are really attuned to. And, and that's actually why Dr. Samantha Nutt set up the organization like she did, which was focusing on those community-led solutions and on um, having local leadership, 99% on the ground, being local. So you actually, that 1% of folks that are not actually um, from those communities, generally they're people from one region over, et cetera, et cetera. It's very rare for us actually to be sending folks from Canada overseas these days. Uh, and that's actually because the competencies on the ground are extremely high. Um, you know, we have staff in, whether it's Uganda or South Sudan who have more degrees than the three of us combined. Um, and well, that's, actually, that's pretty that's easy for Alex. That's easy for Alex and I. It's tougher for you, Elliot. Um, but they've actually come. But some, in some cases, they've come back home after having very successful. I mean, I met a corporate lawyer in northern Uganda who left uh, Kampala's version of Bay Street in order to give back uh, in the refugee settlements. And those types of stories are stuff that we hear all the time. Um, sure, there's intercultural communication issues that we face from time to time, but the real thing that we just always have to be alive to and keep in check is that we're making sure that those communities are leading. Um, and we have all sorts of internal controls and, and ways that we approach our development of programs to fix that up. Uh, in terms of communications and conflict areas, you're right, it is ultimate. We, we did have a bit of a head start uh, pre-COVID because we are such a mobile tech-focused organization, um, you know, uh, we probably, um, you know, do most of our communications through uh, previously Skype, now Zoom. Uh, and even this year with COVID-19, we actually got rid of our headquarters so that we can ensure that our focus remained on um, our programs by downsizing from a pretty large office to quite a small one, because we found that our old model of digital communications was so successful. For, for us, it's all about making sure that, the, that is on the switch from digital, that you still have these points of communication, these times where you can bring groups together for um, those cultural connections, right? So we're still trying to find opportunities to stay, so, to stay social with one another, to be able to have brainstorming, um, to try to create the opportunities for us to not just be talking about the grant proposal or the donor that we're dealing with, but new problems on the ground. And that's something that really has just been a team by team effort that we're really, you know, I think we've had a lot of success with during COVID-19, um, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge for us here. And I think it's going to be a challenge for the years to come as we slowly come out of the pandemic. Maybe you can dig in on that a little bit deeper about uh, how do you build those like those relationships and that having fun with your team, you know, in far flung places. Um, I, the corporate world could probably learn from that uh, working remote now. I mean, what are what are some practical 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 things you employ to do that? Oh gosh, I don't want to hold us out as being successful in that. I think <laughs> it's pretty much a work in progress. I think if sure. I pretended if I pretended to do that, I think my staff would would call Darren and I out for a few mm -hmm. very lame ideas that we've had over the last little while. I mean, I think it's all just about like, you know, uh, ensuring that the, you really, uh, you know, I find personally, it's very easy to look at work from home in a very transactional way, particularly when 
um, there are borders involved. Uh, okay. So you have to be, I know our international programs team aren't just focusing their communications on the daily tasks, but on just checking in with people, particularly when there's conflicts or there's problems on the ground um, to make sure that those relationships go beyond the transactions. And that sometimes that means actually, you know, creating that at the different times and different platforms in order to engage for stuff that's unrelated to the task at hand. You know, the big loss of the water cooler is something that we have to substitute with. Let's go zoom out a bit. And I think there's a lot of people who are listening and who read the newsletter and, you know, they kind of said, I know we just hit the new year. And so they're probably thinking about, you know, 2021 now, but they're going, you know, we, I usually allocate a couple hundred bucks to uh, give back in some capacity or another. And then, uh, how should you think about that other than contributing to, to War Child and all their great work? How would you recommend they think about where to allocate those funds to make the biggest impact? Yeah, the first thing I want to just say is that no matter, a lot of people, particularly in our age group, are don't think that whatever they can contribute will really make an impact. I can promise you, given how crazy the margins are for most charities, both at home here in Canada and abroad, um, every dollar does count. Um, there's a real, there's a whole host of tools that you can use to approach who you give to and why. Um, the very old school method, as I mentioned before, is, you know, look at overhead, make sure your money is being spent on X, Y, and Z. Uh, that model, that approach to focusing on hardcore metrics of an organization um, is one that I think is uh, really useful in the sense that you want to ensure that there's transparency. Uh, you want to ensure that you know where the funds are going, but it can have a, a, an effect of not really understanding the impact that the organization is actually having on, a, on the ground. Um, so quite recently, Mackenzie Scott made a very substantial donation uh, that's historic, not only in the sheer amount of money and organizations that she's supporting, but a very underreported aspect of that is that her and her teams actually did due diligence on the organizations beforehand, as opposed to saying, you have to spend my money on this, you have to do reports because they believed in the essentials of the organizations. Um, and that I think is really critical. Know the mission, understand the impact that they're having, understand the sustainability, um, and then trust these organizations in order to deliver on the mission that they can, that they uh, promise to deliver on. And that's just something that I think that all of us need to do when we approach giving is do the research upfront um, and make sure that it aligns with your values. That's a good point. I've heard the critique before that there is such a focus on uh, efficiency when it comes to donors and charities now that many charities are handcuffed in that they can't actually build the capacity they need to increase their impact because that looks like unnecessary overhead. They also can't make long-term investments because the impact isn't as immediate and it's hard to measure. And so I think starting with your values and working backwards from there is probably really good advice. Yeah. And, you know, I, I give an example of context matters. So if you're trying to compare an organization that's trying to provide education to uh, children who are at risk um, in a really stable environment versus an unstable environment, you're going to have different costs and different outcomes just because the change of context, right? So, you know, it, it is really important for us to 
look behind the numbers to make sure that you understand what might be driving costs, what might be driving impact um, in a way that sometimes those numbers don't really show. For example, a dollar spent uh, in a capital city somewhere in a safe environment educating a kid will go further than a dollar in a remote region working in a refugee camp for a kid who is um, just trying to uh, balance going to school with also personal security issues and providing for their families. Um, and these are the types of contextual things that lay behind the numbers. You know, you always want to make sure that there's very strong financial ability. We're really, really happy that this year um, we've been uh, named by Charity Intelligence as one of the top 10 impact charities. And that's through those types of numerical and contextual analyses. But it really is important for donors in, to, to look behind those numbers and behind that analysis to make sure that they feel comfortable with where their dollars are going. How do you communicate this on like a larger scale? How do you how do you go to the public and say we're the charity you should choose? In, in a sense, you're competing against other charities and you're competing, you know, for for everyone's limited spending overall. I mean, what's what's your approach to that? Yeah, it's really difficult. Personally, I don't look at it too much like a competition because I think that you are essentially trying to connect with somebody that shares your values and your your goal and your mission. Um, and that's going to be a person, it might have some overlap towards another organization that's working for, for example, uh, children's fitness and nutrition here in Toronto in a, in a challenging neighborhood. Um, but oftentimes those aren't really interchangeable goods. For me, it's about communicating the ethos of the organization, right? Uh, the mission of the organization, the impact of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I think a lot of people right now, they don't want just to put a book in a kid's hands. They don't want to just send food overseas. They want to understand, particularly this year, what systemic change is going to happen by their, their efforts. And to me, it's about communicating how you're going to be able to have that longer term impact. That's what I think is, you know, at least the approach that we take. Um, but each organization has to appeal to their own special donor in that way. Hmm, really neat. Uh, look, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. This has been really good. I will kind of end off with a few personal questions. One about you and one about us. Uh, I always look forward to the answer about us. But uh, for you, just personally, any, any books that you've read that have inspired you or have you know, driven you to, to where you are today? Uh, on my first week at War Child, my, my colleague Dara gave me a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott, uh, which I think has been very, very helpful for us on our journey together. Um, you know, their basic her basic thrust is that you have to ensure that there's transparency within your organization, that you're getting work done, but that there has to be the right balance of empathy. And empathy can mean not only helping someone when they're going through a challenge, but also telling someone when they're not doing great work but over and above just always being transparent. And I think that's been a really, really helpful guiding star for us. Um, you know, I, uh, I got to give a shout out to David Goggins and Can't Hurt Me. I don't know if you guys have read David's book, but yeah. he is a amazing ultra marathon athlete who came from a background in the States uh, where he overcome child, overcame child abuse and racism, uh, obesity, 
to join uh, the Marines and eventually become this amazing athlete. And what I love about his story is his tenacity, but also when he went to publish his book, uh, publishers were uh, lowballing him. So he self-published it. And uh, he's now doing quite well because he came out there on being entrepreneurial. Uh, and last but not least, I'll do a bit of a cheat. I won't, I won't say in a book, but an author, uh, my friend Hadia Roderick, who uh, is a pretty amazing uh, writer here in Toronto that comments on a lot of systemic issues. She uh, wrote Black on Bay Street a few years ago, which talked about the challenges of a diversity in uh, not only law, but also financial areas. Um, but I know she's got a couple books up her sleeve that she's going to be publishing someday. But if you ever get a chance to read anything but her, I think she marries the uh, realities of social injustice, but also because of her background as a PhD in organizational um, work from Brotman, she really understands the business possibilities of getting these issues right as well. Uh, so yeah, those are my three. Great books. And then the question about us is, what do you think about this podcast? Any, any, uh, any improvements that we can make? Feedback, always, always welcome. No, it's absolutely great. I mean, I'm a big fan of your newsletter. I follow it. I uh, have mistakenly followed it for stock investment uh, advice. Which oh, that's a terrible oh, idea. We're explicitly not investment <laughs> yeah. advice. Let's yeah. make that very, very clear. <laughs> I know. I wish I read that. As a lawyer, I probably did. <laughs> no, I think it's phenomenal. And, and I really uh, appreciate you giving me a platform to come and talk about what we do. And I'm excited to hear other uh young folks who are doing interesting things. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's great. And I'm really excited to see how it grows. I'm going to stop That's, asking that question. That's a bad question. Yeah. But I, here, here's a good question to add on to that. Who would you want to shout out as, you know, other people who are doing interesting things? That's a better question. Thank you. Um, actually, I, it's actually the other individual uh, who I mentioned before, Hadia Hedia Roderick, uh, she has this fascinating combination of being a consultant. Uh, she has a Rotman PhD in organizational performance, I believe, um, but also this experience as a writer commenting on systemic issues. And she uh, can do both the incredible communications of you know writing a long-term piece of journalism, but she's also active day-to-day, -day, um, really trying to address uh, the challenges of diversity uh, in uh, business contexts. Uh, and she's someone that I always find is on the leading edge of thinking about this. And so for the, you know, that's obviously an issue that's on the forefront of business right now. And something that I think uh, the readers and listeners for the peak would really appreciate. Awesome. Well, Elliot, thanks so much for joining us today. I thought that was such a fascinating discussion about what it's like to, you know, be in the thick of it in international philanthropy, especially exciting that it is a local charity that's doing really great stuff around the world. Uh, I couldn't recommend more to people to, to donate and, and look into what War Child's doing. It's really, really great work. And Elliot, look, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much.